The Underground Records was at 18 Seabot Road, Forest Gate. It was both a recording studio and a record shop and operated from 1991 until 1996. Owned by Mike the Underground, his brother Callhan Flex, Uncle 22 and DJ Randall, it was an independent business which was one of the cornerstones in the development of the UK hardcore jungle and drum and bass scene. The wider D Underground family included A-Sides, MC Fats, Marley Marl and Wacko. The Underground became synonymous with this sound and many well-known releases, including Lenny D'Ice's We Are I.E., Uncle 22's Six Million Ways to Die and Callhan Flex's Melody Madness. As part of Newham Heritage Month, the project Crate Digging, the influence of the underground records by Rendezvous Projects, aims to celebrate, share and preserve the cultural history of this Forest Gate institution. The following starts by introducing life in Forest Gate in the 80s, musical and cultural influences, and then goes on to hear about the shop, studio, protagonists, making music and its legacy. It includes extracts from oral histories from A-Sides, Anita Bogle, Cool Hand Flex, DJ's Chef, Hype, Marley Marl, Randall, Sky, Warlock and Wax, MCs Fats, Navigator and Rage, Sherry Morrison, Eddie O'Cheer, Paul Romain, Uncle 22 and Laura Young. For more information, please see Newham Heritage Month and Rendezvous Project's websites. What sort of endeared me to Forest Gate was that it really was a beautiful East London village and a beautiful community. Forest Gate is and always has been an amazing place. I think when you're growing up and you live in somewhere like Forest Gate, you don't really realise just how lucky you are in the sense that the kind of cultural mix of people, the social mix of people. I remember I had friends that never owned a TV and only ever read books, and I had friends that didn't own books but would only read TV. So you've got two completely different ends of the spectrum. I remember it being very nice. I mean, like, there was always stuff to do with friends and that. There's always loads of friends that I could meet up and go play football and play basketball and stuff like that. It was mixed culture as well. I'd have a mixture of friends, black or white, Asian mainly. It was a hard place. You know, it was like the ending of the National Front. So my neighbours downstairs were voting National Front at the time and my uh, next-door neighbours as well. But there was a lot of community in those places. Growing up was fun. It was fun. I can always say, you know, playing out in the streets, it's so cliche, but playing out after dark, like, you know, the arcades, like just normal organic kind of things that were happening. And, you know, I feel sorry for the kids of today because they are very isolated and insular, like compared to when we had nothing, but we had everything. Where Seabrook Road is, there's like like six blocks of houses around between roads in between. And it was just a great community of all these kids that congregated in such a small area. Very multicultural, very mixed. And everyone just knew each other. Again, an immigrant community of people that had all kind of, whose parents had all maybe come over at the same time, had all landed in the same area, as kind of went to the same events. And, and that's one thing I say about the 80s. I weren't afraid to go anywhere in the 80s apart from we didn't go to Romford or we didn't go to Cannon Town. The area had this kind of musicality or kind of performance thing. Forest Gate was known for music. You got a place like the Alpha Cup, which would play all like reggae sound system stuff and bits and pieces like that. And you had the Lotus Club, who play all pop music. We never went to them. That's when all the big geezers used to walk with their knuckles dragging on the floor, their little blonde birds. And they'd walk down the road, and as you walk, you just wouldn't even look. You had Leicester's, which is further down the road in Upton Lane, which was a predominantly record shop that played reggae music. There was a few little naughty ones, like the Black Box, which was in the muses of Forest Gate, which had all the early reggae, bluesy-esque parties. 
got a Shabins, someone's got a spare house or a house, and there'd be a full sound system rigged up. The outside uh, windows would be vibrating. The kitchen would be the bar in the food area. You had like King Original sound, Rebel sound, you had Chappie sound, you had Sledgehammer sound, you had Warrior sound. We had a lot of sounds coming out of Forest Gate. You've got Funkadelic, you've got Touch of Class, you've got all these other sound systems that have been played. These sound systems were in the 80s going into houses, they're rigging up their sets of their derelict houses and playing music. We grew up in there, the whole 80s that was happening, toasting, DJ scratching, mixing from hip hop to r So when you're exposed to that, that's where we come from. So that was evidently going to come out in the music if we started to produce it. For such a small area, so much came out of it. Substantial part of Forest Gate culture. Like, we had, we had so many musicians. And Forest Gate kids had their own look. The silhouette was very slim. It wasn't sort of like a baggy, oversized garments that you would have seen in hip-hop culture at the time, but very much like a really nice tailored silhouette, sweatshirt, tight jeans, Air Max or Reebok Classics, you know. And the flat cap was so East London. Two older brothers, they started like a sound system that was Unity Hi-Fi. Used to run with them a lot. Robert used to play records, they called him Ribs. Richard used to talk on the mic, he used to call him Roy Rankin. He met a few people through Unity. Your Ragga Twins, your Speckies, Navigators of the world. Yeah, I met him when I was quite young. Because uh, my dad used to have a set of turntables where he used to do like parties more uh, reggae kind of parties and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, every so often when he used to go work, I used to go and play on his decks and go through his records. That's the first time I kind of, kind of actually felt the appreciation for using plastic on turntables and stuff like that. When I first began, heavily influenced by my brothers, it was reggae music. I'm listening to hip-hop and jazz funk, Ronnie Laws, Roy Ayers. I've just spent, spent six years playing the violin and listening to classical music, so I've, like, I've got no blinkers. It's just music I love. I think all the Caribbean families always had music because I think they used to house a lot of their own parties in their own houses because obviously trying to get out to clubs and stuff like that was a bit more of a peculiar situation um, because just that era is how it was. So they always had house parties and then have like bars in their houses and invite friends around and have drinks. So, you know, you kind of know who's coming, you know, you can have more of a laugh, can integrate better. This is where that whole culture comes from, from house party to doing, you know, raves in, in houses, charging at the door, and it kind of stems from that era. I mean, I used to play at some parties myself, friends' parties and stuff like that. Along came like, Rear Groove and Lovers Rock and stuff like that, and kind of diversified the sound a bit more. And then obviously hip-hop was, was on the rise from the early 80s. Now, now Electro comes in, it's like, wow, yeah, we can really get into this. Now we can dance to it as well. We've got these dances moves we can do to it. And now we're challenging each other and people cutting windmills and you know, head spins and, you know what I'm saying? It was a great phase we went through. My, my record collection used to be a bit of reggae, a bit of hip-hop, then I'd have a mixed up selection of a bit of everything, you know what I mean? Even to pop, a bit of jazz here and there. The records I collected over the years were a good sample collection as well. I used to listen to a lot of pirate radio when I was younger. I loved it, you know what I mean? So I thought, well, I can do this. I used to listen to DJs like Jazzy, Jazzy B. 
I used to like that kind of thing, the mix, mixing different elements of music together. So I ended up trying doing some of that stuff myself. Ended up uh, meeting up with friends that were into the same kind of thing. Used to every so often form a little community and just kind of go around each other's houses and have a little mix up. Everyone knew someone and someone would tell you, oh, someone's doing the pirate radio station. Maybe you should come along, you know? So we all used to love doing it, you know what I mean? So we would actually risk losing our entire record collection just to spend two hours playing music on, on air. Murchison Road, Clayton. That's where we met Peter, because he used to live across the road. Me and Alex are walking down the road. We can hear house music beating down out of this flat. We're like, one day, you gotta see who this thing is, because this ain't the music that's playing. This is somebody making music we know, because we, we do this thing. We're walking out. Alex was like, nah, chat, let's just go over there. So we just went over there, man, knocked on his door. Pop, pop, pop. You make music? Yeah. So do we. Come down one time with Parley. Yeah. That's that. So now we're a group. We're called Sudden Impact. It's me, Corinne, Alex, Peter, and a guy called Slim. This is where the pirate radio comes in. Because now we're all making music and we need a way to publicize that little group. I think it's Pete's brother, John Amar who knew a couple of people that wanted to start up their own pirate radio. And the first pirate radio we did was Centre Force. When I first met Randall, it was through Centre Force. Because we started Fantasy, kind of got kicked off that too. Started another one, Rave FM. Just left that one because I kind of grew out of the pirate thing after that. We kind of got to the crux of it where we wanted to start putting music out and we didn't really want to go to anybody to do that so we had our studio offices in Forest Gate. Pete's brother Michael takes over and decides we don't really need an office we can do it from a record shop so we're like yeah all right fine because all we want to do is make music and put it out basically. They had Real to Real, the label. The offices of Real to Real was it was by you know where Woodgrange Park Station is. It was actually Mikey, Mikey that found us the place. The underground is born. <laughs> so we set the office, take all the equipment and whatnot, we put it in the basement of the record shop. So the record shop is a former a studio. Secondly, a record shop. Well, I was going for a job interview and I bumped into Uncle 22 on the road. And I goes, what are you up to? So he basically told me like, yeah, we're, we've got a basement. And Flex and, and, and all them lot are down there and they're gonna, try and set up like a little studio or whatnot. So I looked at my watch and I thought, you know what? Should I go to the interview or should I just go and check these guys? Cause I haven't seen them, I ain't seen them. I think it was about a good six months. So I thought, oh, let's just go down and see them. I said, forget it, I wasn't really keen on that interview anyway. So I ended up going down to the shop and seeing them guys. And then, you know what I mean? We were just chatting away and you know what I mean? Reminiscing and we just thought, you know what? We should set up a record shop. Cause there ain't really nothing really going on around there. And that's how it evolved. It was pretty run down, there was a lot of work to do, I remember that. We built it in about, I think it was about six months. It was a prime example of what an underground record shop, an underground record label should be. John, Mikey and Peter. So Mikey is uh, is obviously the underground. 
John had Real to Real, and Peter is Cool Hand Flex, who was an artist for both of those labels. He was making tunes as well as Uncle 22. So Uncle 22 was making tunes as well, and, and both of them would work in the shop. Randall was probably the main person working behind the counter most, and that, that became quite a big draw. People would come down to see Randall, and Randall was be- becoming more popular. Wacko, he was very much part of the part of the firm, if you like. Marlon, who used to release stuff as Marley Marl, that was his DJ name as well. He was another, another regular part of the crew at the shop. Jason, he's called A-Sides. He came to us. Raw from China, he came to us. But no, people just came to us. Randall came on board. We was more about, as well, supplying Randall with new music. Being a DJ, trying to get in. If you've got new music, you're in, especially if it's good. But Mikey was kind of the one who was the, I guess, sort of like running it all, the, the business mind behind it. He was kind of like running the shop, pressing up records brilliant like kind of model really you know the whole production chain is there there's like you know someone making tunes someone pressing these tunes up into white label then the shop selling these tunes because obviously they were selling all their own tunes for the shop as well meeting mikey for the first time he struck me as one of the most generous people i'd ever met and cared i genuinely liked mikey his personality he's very inspiring once Randall got into DJing, that worked itself. He was promoting the, the label, he was promoting the shop, so it sort of worked. Flex making records, he had all the time in the world, just from the shop shop, back in the studio. He's right there, he ain't got to go nowhere. Made beats, next day, there's another tune ready, so... Flex and Uncle were really talented guys. To be fair, I used to look up to them a lot. You know what I mean? The way they used to make their music. And these guys was like the architects of writing music, and I used to get their music and play their music. Before we knew it, we just had a unit. We was all into the same thing. Um, between me, Mark, and the others, we was making sure the production got to a state where it got to the vinyl, did the distribution, it sold. It's just a, a full full circle, complete. I think the main thing was just to get music out. If we can, if we can sell music, what we wanted to buy, and make music we, we wanted to sell as well. So it kind of worked out to keep it both in, in all the house. A lot of it was ours, our stock that we wanted to sell because we needed a place to put it. <laughs> That's what I'm saying, we didn't really sell a lot of records, other people's records from the record shop. It was just more of a base for us to do our business from. It was really nice to be in a record shop like that, which basically sold music from its own community. The Underground was the main sort of umbrella name, but um, underneath that there was uh, a whole load of sub-labels. Yeah, what labels was there? It was In Touch, Oddball, Pure Energy, Rough Groove, You Know That, IE Records. So that was the kind of um, umbrella labels under the underground. And then on top of that, you had like Real to Real. Real to Real was run by a guy called John, Mike and Paul Ann Flex's brother. It was pretty well known that we did a lot of the labels from our shop. People knew that going elsewhere would be a gamble, but coming to us is more of a certainty. They had so many different labels, and then they'd, they'd release like one track, it would be on one label, and then it would be on another label. Like there was no consistency to a lot of a lot of the releases back in those days. I think the back catalogue of all those labels, it, it's like a mystery waiting to be unravelled. Anyone that lived in that area, when you walk past that part of Woodbridge Road and you can hear the booming noise, you're kind of like, what's going on over there? It's not the kind of sounds that would come out of Woolworths on a Saturday afternoon, if you know what I mean. But always remember, we put a tannoy outside the shop and we thought, you know what, 
If the door's shut, some people might want to hear some music, just to know that people know where we are. Little did we know that this thing was traveling. So people used to say this, to come out of the train station and they, they could hear music and they were gravitated to it. So we used to get a lot of traffic that way until we got letters from the council saying we have to take this tannoy down because a lot of people are complaining like on that corner there'd just be loads of people sort of hanging around connected to the shop and then sometimes you weren't sure if people were connected or not and then I think some people would just be local and just hang around anyway because it felt like there was something going on and you know sometimes the door would be open and the music would be blasting out and cars would be pulling up all the big flashy BMWs drop tops would pull up and you know on a good day there's 10, 15 of the biggest UK DJs producers holding court outside. It was like a party. It literally was like it was a buzz, the music was playing, people were chatting and, and laughing and cracking jokes and you know, when people buy music, it was just it was just something that was just a buzz at the time. And it's like being a cross between a party and a community centre. MC Fats sitting on a chair outside drinking a beer just chatting you know and it was truly a community you know in that sense where people walked by they said hello and that meant the old people the young kids would come in and pick up a flyer just even the forecourt outside like you had the food shop cut the doors down again you kind of picture it as kind of something from um, like a Spike Lee movie like do the right thing where everyone's hanging on the block it's summertime and the music's blaring people are pulling up inside the car oh my god it's like the jungle fraternity arriving here and it would literally just be that like for like Fats was around Randall was around a guy called Danny who had the, the burger bar out there was like a burger bar outside there's a lovely community because we had the barbershop around the corner we had the food shop across the road we had the cafe around the corner so we was all doing things together because there were so many of us within the family doing different things to help the cause it worked I don't think it would work if it was just two of us for instance but yeah no, it was quite the underground you know it just looked dark and it wasn't like an HMV with lights and you know it was just it didn't put me off going there mm-hmm. <laughs> it had a good feel to it it had a, a definitely underground feel it was quite wild down there the music and the vibe was great uh, walking into the shop, there was some amazing artwork on the walls, painted by a graffiti artist, and you know, kind of like really insightful art on the walls. It's very much a part of the culture, but very much counterculture. You know, like this is a record shop that was filled with graffiti art. You know, the signage was graffiti, uh, the windows were like street, so it felt like this was a familiar place and a homely place for the culture. The decoration was made it look like it was in a cave. I mean, so they done that, and that was quite iconic because it looked like it was painted like it was in a cave, like rocks and stuff like that. So I think that's what draw people to the place. Like, wow, look at this place! Look at the paint, like the graph, the graffiti finishing. It was like, wow. It was a really busy but small shop. It was a very small area. I can remember that part about it. And it would get quite packed in there. They were very, very busy because they had a lot of underground exclusives from their label. The sound system in there as well was second to none you know it'd be like any kind of sound system that you'd have at any decent rate these days you know huge speakers and records on the side flies on the sides and then this is like really high desk that wrapped all the way around so you'd have to lift it in the secret bit to get through i never went to the back of the shop ever but i spent some good half an hours just leaning against the side you know listening to other people come in and i don't remember seeing very many women in there actually which is also funny like very strange Um, But despite the fact that it was very male-dominated, I never felt intimidated there. I never felt um, apprehensive about going there or unsafe or any of those kind of things that, unfortunately, 
we wouldn't have to worry about these days. Walking into a record shop that didn't have records. I'm like, eh? You just walked in, there's this little roll, a stack on the side with flyers, like paper flyers and a couple of record sleeves. But there's like five, six people at the counter and there's a geezer behind the deck and he's playing tunes. When I first went in there, Randall was selling records in there and he used to play the music and that. Another guy called Wacko, he used to work at SRD. Winston Runtings, he used to be a distributor, so he would just turn up with his van and be selling, you know, white label 12 inches and all of that. And Randall would be just in there just mixing music and it's a love I used to play, it's a seamless mixing and everything. So me and Flinky used to go there with tapes. While I'm in the back producing music and Randall selling music, he's mixing the music together, he was just putting a cassette and tape. I still still got some of them tapes. Yeah, them times was great, man. It's like it was like the early development of coming into jungle and watching all these guys come into their own as professionals and big names. It was different to any other record shop. You had the studio right there inside the record shop, you know, the whole cultural side of it, the vibe. It was just different. Yeah. The studio times had a lot of good days, you know. We used to hang out in the back of Hype, Andy C, uh, Navigator, Goldie, but loads of us just doing our musical thing. Absolutely loved it. Flex and Uncle, to me, they were like scientists. They have so much fresh ideas. It was like, I'd hear this stuff being made. It's like a privilege, really, you know what I mean? It would be very inspiring to hear it. Loads of people have come down and had sessions, like Goldie passed through a couple of times, like Hype worked with Flex. It is like an inspirational vibe. People used to come from miles around just to see what we was doing. Warlock, he used to come and sit for all of us. We had quite a few artists off of Reinforce. That's kind of how we met Goldie, because he was on Reinforce at that time. We came across the foundation of drum and bass. At some point, we came across them. Then I started getting sometimes, just bring your sampler down in it and plug it in. We can just jam. So I might be at home working on a track. I might be a bit bored or stuck, so I'd unplug my big sampler, drive down there, put my sampler in, plug into theirs, and maybe spend a couple of hours jamming in there. It's like me making a track in an event. You're getting instant responses, and not only am I getting instant responses, I'm getting it from people that know music. They're in the same game as me. No matter how good I think it is, if they tell me it's not all that, I know it ain't all that. Definitely very, very innovative and creative process that gave me a lot of insight and knowledge into producing music, making music, understanding the logistics of how it was done. Going there, I think, made me better because, again, I wasn't learning, it wasn't learning technical writing, it was just that vibe. You knew there was a studio in the back, so this was the thing. You knew they were making the music, they were making potentially what could be the next. 12 that's going to come out or be on dub play that's happening or when the door swung open and you've got a cheeky little bar of like, dong, 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 dong. You're like do you know what I mean and I think it was just that whole thing you knew there was record label there you knew there was the celebrities there you knew there was person there was a pool table there so you could just hang out and I think it was a community centre a junglist community centre uh, but it was exciting because to see all those DJs to hear the talk to be included into conversations to watch the records being sold to see what the records of the day were to, to go into a record shop and it was packed because one of the DJs had just started mixing, which was an art in itself. So people would just go quiet and just watch your favorite DJ who you're actually seeing behind the counter start DJing. Stayed in for the day and just listening to Marlon mix for like 10 hours. They don't mess up at 10 o'clock in the morning, mix, 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 mix till closing and sell records at the same time, obviously. 
Yeah, there'll always be someone um, there to have a mix-up with the tunes or whatever to um, see how they'll drop with another tune. We've always had both decks set up, so a lot of the punters that will come in would want to hear like a, a selection of tunes because they want a set to play when they get home, you know? So we'd put like a selection of tunes together as soon as they walk in the shop. I could just imagine Randall just playing, just mixing, or one of them will be just mixing. They'll just mix in and people in there like get collecting their flyers and rave tickets, obviously. Stand there for a minute, watching Randall mix with, without no headphones. Like, who the fuck is this geezer? And it was still new to me. The sound was still new. So when I heard Randall, it was like, wow, wow. They just grew from there. Randall was quite extrovert and funny and chatty, and um, he was quite elusive. I seem to remember. Record shops were like that back in the day. They were kind of sort of social centres but I'd, I'd probably be a bias of the underground but it would, it would just be a hangout you know it just, it just I'd be hanging out with people in the shop meeting people I'd be hanging out outside the shop you know just casually chatting about what's going on where you DJ next week what tunes are going what's happening what's happening with the music it, just, it would just be great like you know this is pre-internet as well which with all these things you have to kind of really remind yourself it was great because it was just like, I'm from Forest Gate and here it is. The whole world had to turn up to Forest Gate. He was into raving, he was into the early hardcore drum and bass, techno, whatever it was, you, you had to come to the underground record shop because that's where the cool guys were. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's really like a party atmosphere. So, I mean, sometimes, yeah. I mean, you used to get the moody things where you'd get bad music in, you know what I mean? And then you'd get people walk in and, and if you come in yet, no, and then they'll walk out again. There used to be good weeks as well, where there'll be so much music coming out in one week, you know what I mean? And then everyone wants a copy of something, or where something's sold out. People have got stuff on hold and want that particular copy, but you're, saying, you're trying to say to them, no, I've got that on hold for someone. And it's like, it's not washing with some people, you know what I mean? It was a very buzzy shop. Come Friday and stuff, they would get really quite packed in there, and they had a really good little crowd. It was a big thing, it was a Saturday, it was a Saturday record day, and we'd all had our tapes, like, you know, tunes that we wanted, and like... You know what? A lot of people used to come in and sing. A lot of people used to come in and sing the tunes. What's has that tune going? Yeah, that one, yeah, that one. And then going down there and thinking, because it was the new shop, thinking that it would be like Music Power in Ilford, where it would have rows and rows of records that you could flick through and look at the artwork. It wasn't that, and it was just this geezer mixing. Like, I didn't know who it was at the time. Obviously, it was Randall. I didn't know it was Randall. And it's these people just putting up their hand, just a record landing in front of them. So they're kind of, I'm observing this new, new way of record shopping. You would traditionally go to the shelf, pick up what you wanted, go to like a listening post, listen to it, and then go and buy it. But here, you were listening to tunes being mixed, and then you go, yeah, that one. And then the man will just hand you a white label over the counter and there'll be five people in a row with just these stacks of records on front of them. It's like, a, like being an auction house, I suppose, isn't it? What can I say? How do you have that? So he's got different characters. He's very unorthodox, but it worked. You know what I'm saying? It actually really worked. It almost like sometimes I think you actually have to ask someone behind the counter to sort of actually get you something to play because I think Randall often, I mean, he was brilliant, he'd be there, but he'd often just be like pulling tunes off the shelf and just having a mix, like, and just be deep in a mix, which was quite good. It inadvertently did sell the tunes. It kind of was just like you were sort of in a bit of a rave or a, a radio station. So it was just like a buzz. It was just like, I don't know, it was just like a, a melting pot of great music, vibes, everything you could think of. You know what I'm saying? It was lovely. It was just a great melting pot of just 
people getting together for the same purpose, which was the music. The music was the purpose. That's what it was. It was definitely a, a, a central hub, yeah. It, yeah, it was a central hub. It was a good meeting point. I think a lot of DJs used to go down. Any, it's like any record shop, you know. You'd go down there. You never know who'd walk through the door. Record shops are a good place to um, network with you. I would just be in there and I would meet other people pressing up records and i get talking to them and they would give me their, their promos and test presses for the same reasons. So it was a community, yeah. There was so much camaraderie, so much unity. And it was always a friendly atmosphere. There was never a bad word said about anyone really, you know what I mean? It was, it was all like a little community, family kind of thing. We was all friends, but it was more like a family in a way. You knew what was going on. If there was some, if there was some talk, if there was some good talk happening, if there was some bad talk happening, if there was some scene talk happening, this was the spot. Everything that was happening in the scene, whether it be promoters or people, or what, this was where we knew about it. It was the information centre, to not take a pun, you know what I mean? You would hear everything. It was the boys club of gossip, like everyone chatting rubbish about each other or whatever. But it was a forum and it was a place that so you would have west, south, north, east, all congregated at the underground. You had Flex and Uncle who were producers who were always making music. And you had Mikey that was making music. So you had three producers in there, totally constantly bouncing from each other all the time. And then you got Rand in the mix, then you got Fats in the mix, and you got myself. So you got six people always hovering around the studio about what the next track, how good that baseline is, or how good the track is, or what that sounds like. So when you talk about creativity, everyone had a part to play in terms of influencing, supporting what was being created at the time. We was kind of drawn to each other like a magnet. A lot of guys were DJs, but some were actually making music as well. So we'd always meet up, exchange ideas and stuff like that. We'd end up working together. Lenny Dice first met him through uh, Uncle 22. We ended up working together for a while and um, bounced ideas of each other and stuff like that, incorporating the DJ with making the music. There was Flix and Uncle that were, were the main guys down here. Pete was good and I was good. But when it comes to me and Pete, there was nothing but happiness. If Pete made a good tune, it was wicked. And if I was, that was wicked too. I loved it, man. He, he had an angle of working. He's helped me out a lot, actually. He had a different angle of working around grid editor, Cubase. I think when I first met Uncle, he showed me how to use Cubase properly. I just wanted to make the music. That's all I ever wanted to do. I always knew I wanted to do something involved with music. If you want to do something original, you can't really follow anything. You couldn't be influenced by it but you've got to do something original. For me, that was a big thing. I wanted to do something different. Once uh, we both got hold of an SH-101 and we just used to pounding for hours, just trying to get the right bass lines or whatever. And um, but the thing is with, with them tools, right? Once you find the perfect sound you want, you could never save it. So you'd have to use it at that time. And then that's it, you know what I mean? So it'd be a one take and that's it. It's always creative, it's the underground, man. Come on, tracks are making tunes every single day. Everyone is sleeping, he's making tunes. I mean, they just had their own unique sound and a lot of good music. It was urban, it was cutting edge and current to that day and era. A-Side was very, very creative. Very creative guy, you know what I mean? So he took me under his wing, I used to go there. I feel like I go there nearly every day. Probably sleep under the carpet and just make tunes, you know what I mean? Because he had the studio and he could use it well. From beginning to end, Fats has always been there with us always helped out behind the counter or 
just the presence him being there helped the whole mood of the shop as well. Cool and Flex has, has made some amazing tunes over the years. Uncle 22 has made some good stuff as well. Uncle 22 had always had a quite a, an unusual, a slightly different angle and different take on things, which I really like. A bit more experimental, actually. We made tracks together. When I wasn't at the underground anymore, we still did some stuff together. Uncle would come over to my house where I had a studio and he would do some work there. Definitely when I started up my own label, Eastside as well, which was in 95, I think. I mean, the first release I did on my own label was me and Flex. I put out some of Flex's solo singles. I did stuff with Uncle and I released a lot of Uncle's solo music as well. Uncle 22, I remember him making music he was remixing a track he'd written called Six Million Ways to Die. And I said, if you want, you could do it at mine. Like, I'll let you use my equipment. And he did it. And I remember him leaving it on. And he was like, if you want to have a bash. I was like, nah, because I like what he'd done. He's original. I thought I ain't going to be out of bit of that. And then I was doing a remix of someone else's track. And I had a bash at it. I don't know. I just thought I'll have a go. It's one of my all-time favorite remix I've ever done. And I remember going down there, playing it. And it was the first time I think I'd ever played one of my, like played something I'd done and everyone had gone nut, like they were playing it upstairs like where the customers would come. And there was probably a couple of customers. I don't know if everyone will remember or not, but I'm sure a DJ called Kenny Ken, I'm sure Randall was there and a few others. But when I put it on, it was like I played the best. Like they're all slapping the wood, grabbing me up. And I just felt like, wow. And it gave me a really good confidence boost as a producer. And it made me realize that that remix must be decent. I'd often be sort of like round the back in the studio, just, you know, chatting or hanging out with with Uncle 22 and Flex. And, I, you know, just Flex would be working on a tune and I'd be checking out what he was doing while he was making it. Flex would be like taking a, a sample from a record. And often what would happen is, was Flex would like pitch up the record We'll play it on double speed, so on 45, so it's playing double the speed and sort of plus eight. So it'd go into the sampler really fast. And the reason this was is because back then samplers had a really short amount of sampling time. So you had like maybe 10 seconds in total sampling time. So all your loops have got to fit into that 10 seconds. You put it into the sampler and then once it's in the sampler, you then slow it down and then it plays the five seconds. But basically it doesn't take up, it takes up a lot less memory on the sampler. Back then we used to chop samples sample by sample, you know what I mean? But now we can just kind of recycle stuff and it's done in like a minute compared to like an hour worth of bloody sucking away on the, the Akai 950. <laughs> I've worked with Randall, but now we just kind of work over over the internet. So um, I'd start off a track or he'll start a track and he'll send the stems over. It's just made, made things a lot more easier than how we used to work. Around us, you had Lenny the Ice that had done WIE. So where that really came from our corner, we was then recognised to be affiliated with that. But that, that WIE style was where we all came from because it, it shows all the influences of all of our music, which was reggae sound system into what modern electro electronic music is, into where this this hardcore jungle music is coming from now. We're now in that stage now where, where this is where it comes from. So, but that WIE thing really was like an anchor. Like he put a rubber stamp in the area. Wow, that WIE came from Forest Gate. Someone had offered him a deal with WIE and then turned him down. He came to us with it. 
he had this amazing long intro. Michael said to him, now we're doing dance music, man, you have to cut that intro off. As I was listening to the track, I heard why he did it. It's difficult to explain it. If you arrange a track a certain way, you're trying to invoke someone's feeling. I heard what he did. And I was like, no, don't change it, leave it. And he was like, really? The, the intro was about a minute and a half. <laughs> I don't know how, but I heard what he was trying to do. I heard it. I said, no, leave it. <laughs> and we put it out as is. You can't mess with someone's flow. If you mess with their idea, you might be changing it for the worse. He knew what he wanted. That's, that's what I do remember. He, he knew what he wanted. I remember them needing a gunshot. So I, 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 I actually remember listening to loads of gunshots. I remember listening to even the Bee Gees' Tragedy. So that was one of the gunshots that was up for consideration for, for, for the IA, I know. Looking back, it, it, it was very creative. He, he, he was very creative. I, I don't think I respected that at the time. Yeah, it was music I didn't understand. Well, because I listened to it recently and just thought, God, this was ahead of its time, you know, it was way ahead of its time. And it pleases me that we were part of it, you know. That particular EP it was me, Uncle 22, Lenny Dice, and A-Sides. And um, yeah, we all kind of worked with each other to make the end product. I think my, my brother Mikey, he put the money forward to press it up and get it mastered and put it out to the distributors. Massive, massive, massive tune. It takes a special person to make a, a tune what an audience likes and a majority audience. And we are even one of them tunes. Just had the, the right bit to it, like 31 seconds. You know what I mean? Long Dark Tunnel, it had them it had that mysterious element to it. Six million ways to die, that one for me was good. That one started on the deck. Sitting in the studio, going through records to get samples out of. Michael Aimer is sitting behind me, watching me. Goes a lot of time. They'd want to know how we got to where we got to. So I'm sitting there, BBC record comes up, and I know there's tons of stuff on this beat. I pick it up, he's like, no, nah, what are you doing? No. Working man, you're supposed to be watching me. What are you questioning me for? He goes, that's a BBC record. You can't get nothing from that. I was like, dude, I bet you I can take something from this, put it on a chair, and twist it so they don't even recognize it. He's like, you're wrong. Six million dead ways to die was born. There's a long sound. It's a really long sound and it opens up from the beginning and it opens up and it's like a scary type thing. And it opens up and it opens up. That's what I got from the BBC. Sound effects. <laughs> Sitting in the corner of a raising Ali Pali, Six Million Ways to Die comes on. The whole place goes mental. A couple of thousand people. Except for me. Nobody knows it's me, obviously. I remember that. I'll remember that for the rest of my life. It's a pinnacle. It is. No it could be 10 people, it could be 100 people, it could be 1,000 people. And they put the record on and they realise it's your tune and then they go mental. Nothing beats that. Nothing. I thought playing the record was good. When it's your record, that's it. I played on the Jungle Fever once and I uh, played Melody Madness. I, I didn't think much of it because I just made the tune and I thought, well, okay, this sounds good enough. 
So I played it on my set. I think I had it cut on dub plate then. But then I was surprised by the reaction. Because I, I remember having my headphones on and queuing in for the next song. But then hearing the DJs telling me to reel the track up, that was the time in my life I thought, well, you know what, I'm not wasting my time here. I'm doing something that people love. So that inspired me to keep going. It was like being proud of something I've achieved, but I'm helping other people for the love of the music and stuff like that. I'm just contributing to something bigger than myself, which was really nice. A few of the times playing in front of 30,000 people, or 40,000 people in an aircraft hangar or in a big massive field. You start out, all you know is you've got to be there for 5 a.m. You drive to some telephone boxes out in the middle of nowhere. Somebody rings you because you've got to wait there until they ring and then they tell you where you're going. And then it's another hour drive from there. And by the time you get there, you know where you're going because you can hear it and feel it. So when Hype was first sort of like turning out, he had, I remember he had this like really little red Fiat car. I mean, we're all like really young at this point. He, I remember he had this red Fiat and then Hype was starting to do really well. I think he sold his to Randall and then Hype had a, got a BMW. And it was a necessary thing because, you know, you're sort of travelling up and down the country, you need a decent car. So then Randall had, had the red Fiat for a little while and then Randall started doing really well. So he, he then sold or passed on the red Fiat to Flex and then Flex was like driving around this red Fiat. And then like Randall got a BMW, I think, of, of some sort. And then eventually, I think like, Later on down the line, I saw Flex, and the, the red Fiat had gone, and then like, and then Flex had a BMW. So that's a small detail, but this red Fiat, just the way it sort of went for everyone. I think it's just quite symbolic, as like how things were just sort of exploding, and we we're all just like starting to do well. I just really remember that. Do you know what I mean? So seeing your friends escalate, you know what I mean? They would now have the nice car, they would now have the nice car, uh, house, they would have the nice things. Like you were happy for them. If Hype was driving a BM and then Randall started driving the Mercedes and the fit, you were loving it because, yeah, man, all my people are doing something. Six million The shop here ended up being like a beacon for drawing artists to it. So we ended up meeting artists as well as sending music to people. I felt like I saw everyone at some point from the hardcore scene at the time. I saw Goldie there a few times. Busy B, he was he was just over in Leighton. I saw Pesce there quite a lot. Again, he was just starting out, but at the same time as us all. And he, he lived up in South Woodfords. All of the superstars of that early jungle era would be walking in throughout the day. And as a youngster, that would be your way of just saying hello to them. DJ Hype, you're talking about Slipmat, you're talking about LSD, talking about Swanee. DJ Hype used to pass through quite a lot. He used to be good friends of ours and that. And he used to point out if in some of our music sometimes, if it needs something, he'll get dance floor reaction. He'll come back and tell us, oh, well, that, that tune smashed it, or you're going to need to work on that tune or whatever, you know what I mean? We used to have guys like Kenny Ken pass through as well, and he used to help out that way. DJ Zinc used to come in the shop now and again as well. I remember Zinc coming in the shop. He was working in the bank down the road. You know what I mean? I remember Hype coming there. I remember Goldie coming there with his fucking Sierra back bumper on, dragging down the road. Nick and Phil, Desire, they coming down there and we had to push their car because they had no reverse in their car. It was just fascinating. So you'd see DJ Rap, you'd see all these people that were either brand new to the scene but were just making their name so you knew of them because they were on Cool FM they were on Pulse and DJ Rap would walk through the door and everyone was like oh. like everyone would be like hmm, just gone stupid like literally like, and there was only a handful of ladies there was only a hand 
full of ladies. Everyone who was female was either an agent, a promoter, someone who worked in the mechanics of the scene. That record shop was a hardcore shop. It was hardcore, what I like to call darkcore. That was when we developed a little niche, you know, like a subgenre, which was called hardcore. So you had certain labels that were coming through. It was like a breakbeats. So the house music was just like a normal bass kick and a hi-hat. But then we started to put our breakbeats in things. And then it was hardcore and it was UK hardcore. It was, And it was 91 was really, if I was going to say a year, I, I would say that 91 was the year that that, that came through from memory. You know, people might say, oh, it was before that. But from what I remember, working in a record shop, it was, it was definitely 91. We decided to take that hardcore element and now put bass lines to it now and put our reggae element to that to then start create this, this whole jungle situation. Because that's our influence. You think, well, that's great music. We like the speed of it. We like what this thing does to us, but it could do with a bit more of this in it. You know what I'm saying? So let's let's give us our interpretation of it now. Do you know what I mean? So we get a bit of what's going on and we add our bass line and our reggae stuff to it and then you're going to get this. You know what I mean? Hardcore jungle. You know what I mean? So it was hardcore jungle at first. But the hardcore we're talking about really is, is like kind of, it's kind of full name retrospectively now. It's like UK great beat rave hardcore. It's, it's music from sort of the end of 91 to the end of 93. So only over like two years. And it, it quickly came, turned into jungle and it was the precursor to jungle. It was sort of music taking break beats from old funk tunes, old hip hop tunes, old rock tunes and speeding them up to anywhere sort of between 130 and 150 BPM. Basically, as it progressed from 91 to 92 to 93, the music got faster. So the sort of range is about 130 BPM to 150 BPM. Often you'd have a big bass line. In those days, it'd be a big sub bass line. Very much coming from the influence of sort of like sound system culture, like blues and souls parties in, in London and, and the urban areas. And that's sort of like the big bass lines from reggae. And that got more pronounced as Jungle came along. Everyone was just like sampling reggae and dub tunes quite wholesale. And then lots of kind of like techno noises. And this element was kind of being inspired from music from what we called Euro, which is music predominantly from Holland and Belgium, which was using lots of synthesizers and drum machines. And they would have like big kind of lead lines, which we all ended up calling like hoover sounds so basically with hardcore it was sampling all of these tunes and also like tunes from detroit and to a lesser extent chicago i'd call it just underground music but most of the times it was breakbeat music reggae influence hopefully with some stuff as well yeah whenever the distributors came we always looked for stuff that kind of the underground flavor heavy bass lines um heavy beats and stuff like that yeah I can't think of a shop who had someone as big as like Randall. So he was a big novelty of the shop. And cool and flex, obviously. You got Randall DJ, and he was the main DJ, playing that every week. And then coming back and then turning back, that's stream or that sound, or this happened or that thing. So it gave people great insight of what the cutting edge of what people were looking for. I mean, musically, they were doing a lot of good, good music. There was a lot of music that was coming out, like Melody Madness by Flex. Quite big tunes influential they, they made people pay attention to the, la- the, the labels and the, and the shop a lot of people used to respect those guys their music was good their music was raw I absolutely adore Rude Boy I absolutely adore that tune that flex song back in the day the way we'd sell music is that we'd be in there playing tunes to be as part of the tunes we'd get out 
because it was all like test press and new release there was new stuff before it released I think that's what gave the shop its name because you come to the underground and get unreleased tracks which you probably couldn't get anywhere else Nobody knew how important it was at the time. You never know what you had till it's gone kind of scenario. And when it unfortunately died its death in that late 90s era, all these other record shops like Section 5 in Kings Road, Black Market, started becoming the leaders in having the music and it being the spot. Now it's moved to Central. So Jungle stayed in the suburbs and the kind of outreaches, yeah? When it became drum and bass, it became a West End thing. It became a models thing. It became a thing where these different people were now coming to our team. Now what's do with these guys? Like, you know, like, it was that kind of thing. It was a different group of people. UK Garage started to take off between 95 and 97. It got massive, it got absolutely huge, 95 to 97. What happened is the drum and bass shops were being affected by it. A lot of vinyl sales went down and there wasn't a lot of good tunes coming out and it just wasn't as many people hyped about it. A lot of people went to the garage and, you know, I still sell to them, but then I remember that kind of getting kind of stale as well. In the end, there just wasn't a lot of tunes. There was just less people buying vinyl when the CD market came in and there was talk about digital music. I thought, what? So I literally saw shops collapsing like that. It was a shocking thing to see, actually, because I thought record shops would always be there. Things got harder and harder, I think. We wasn't getting as much music as what we was getting before, and I think rent was going up. I think people were losing interest. Randall was getting more bookings, and he was pushed for time. A lot of us kind of weren't seeing money coming in, so we just all went our separate ways in the end. Being part of it was a blessing, it really was. It was all good there. That little um, bit of time in my life, it, I have the best memories. There's not one bad, I haven't got one bad memory there. But yeah, it was just all round good and it was good times. I've got to say, I'm glad that I, I was um, in that environment, in that family unit. There's a learning curve for me, and we all bounced off each other. We were happy doing what we were doing. We created something that was pretty big for what we done. I don't think at the time we knew how big it was going to be, but um, I mean, I smile because there were good days. I mean, if you talk to anyone in the know from the time, the underground was really sort of well known in that respect. It was guys that had nothing. All we had was our music and this scene that was evolved was starting to evolve. And we were just passionate about that. We didn't know we'd be still I'd be still here at this age, still out there playing music to the masses. It was just the best place to meet anyone who was in the scene and anyone who was about to get involved in the scene. The studio was so important. The record labels were really important. The community was really important. Just the celebrities turning up of the scene. And again, they weren't celebrities to the world. They were just celebrities to us. It's kind of nice to know that we had built something that we didn't know would be so like monumental to certain people in that area at the time. I hope that, you know, this does make people remember it. But, you know, at the end of the day, it was a little record shop in Forest Gate. But yeah, definitely made a big impact but not consciously. It was very much an outlet for young people like myself. I guess it felt like our music, because it was from our neck of the woods, 
and our vibes and all the songs that we liked that had been kind of mixed and mashed and put in put in a way that we could enjoy even more. We made music that we liked. Impact-wise, people still talk about us. So yeah, we did make an impact. I wouldn't say it was us that changed the face of music, but we did do something quite original. And now people don't even class it as American music. It's our music, so yeah. In that regard, yeah, we did that. <laughs> yeah, we did that. It definitely put where we were on the map and all the producers in and around East London put us all on the map and as far as a beacon, a whole generation, it would have bypassed them. They'd go past and they'd think that's always been a house. They would have never known that was a record shop and what mad stuff went on there. But looking back, I couldn't be prouder. Not only was that part of my growing up, but it was part of my ends, part of my area. Yeah, so New and Gems, like obviously D-Double and Footsie, culturally already had connections to the shop because Fruitsy's dad had a sound system called King Original Sound System. So that sound system was really pivotal in the influence of having a record shop for a young Fruitsy walking up the road to school, going past that record shop. But still, because their families was involved in sound system, they you instantly connect with sound if it's around you. Um, definitely influenced them. It was the sons or the the younger brothers or whatever of someone that now became the next gen. But a lot of people used to come down and just listen to us just play music. My mate Rage told me like, I didn't even know that artist Plan B used to come down the shop and sit and just listen to us play. I had no idea. Music like Jungle really paved the way for, you know, pioneers in grime that subsequently came um, thereafter. I think for me, it gave the people that are currently in the grime scene that confidence to say, we can create something, we can make it about ourselves, we can make it relevant to the people that we call our peers. Jungle music still defines who I am, I still listen to it, I still appreciate it, I still like hearing an old tune and it's taking me back, you know, like 20 odd years um, to my, you know, in my bedroom at 1am, one, 1 you know, listening to Rocky and MC Debt and then just hearing the when Cool FM went off air at like, you know, 2am on a Sunday morning or whatever it was, so. Drum and bass, it actually goes back to all working class culture, all working class music, all working class art deserves the same level as opera does, if not higher. 30 years later, this culture is still with us and the pioneers of this culture are still walking down the streets that they lived on, you know, visiting their parents and whatnot. And it's worth sort of saying how, you know, groups of young people after midnight hanging out can create something that lasts, that can be exported as a culture. It's hard for like a conservative thinker to get their head around that, that that's how creativity emerges. It doesn't emerge in school or universities, it emerges in spaces where creativity flourishes and that has to be allowed to flourish. 2021, it's interesting to see how these young kids are coming together with the new changes within their areas because a lot of these kids, if all they've got as an influence is a five pound flat white, you know, it's like, you know, you're walking on the road, we had a barber shop, we had a food place, we had different places you could hang out and kind of mingle and mix and talk. And you don't really see that nowadays. What is the cultural spot? It used to be the barbers or from my mum, it might be the market stall or the butchers or somewhere you would go or hairdressers. So you wonder what does bring the old and the new together like that. The Underground 
Let It Be Known from Navi is one of the original platforms that made this music what it is and gave people like myself, Randall, Uncle 22, Cool and Flex, a springboard into the business to get noticed and for people to sort of hear our music. That's what the underground meant to me. We, we invented our own culture and it's become a major export for Great Britain. And I think the way our governments derided us then and deride us now is a lack of respect for culture and the value of culture. It becomes Britain's biggest export. You know, we are one of the world's biggest gun exporters. You know, you can't really be proud of the fact that you export war, but you can be proud of the fact you export dance, peace, love, energy, and a good feeling, you know. Big up, 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 big up,